0: That's N-O-O-M to sign up today.
1: Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies. My name's Daniel Port. Welcome here on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. We're here as we are every single week to take a look at the players, the legends, and the mythology that help tell the tale of baseball throughout its history and I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, this is a really fun one. I know I say that every week, but this one really uh, hit close to home in, in many ways. And we'll get there in a minute. But as last week, we started talking about Shohei Otani. And we looked at, you know, how incredible he was and, and what he's able to accomplish so far through his career as a two-way player and frankly, as his impact on Japanese baseball. And we've also looked at Ichiro Suzuki in the past. And this week I actually want to continue with the theme of looking at the greatest Japanese baseball players of all time. I decided for this week I wanted to talk about a player from Japan's past who spent his entire career playing in Japan's Nippon Professional Baseball League who not only has it more home runs in his career than anyone else on the planet Earth but overcame nationalism and xenophobia to become a Japanese hero. The likes of which I don't know if we've ever seen here in the in the United States. Imagine Michael Jordan, perhaps the most iconic athlete in the history of American sports, and the impression that I get is that Jordan's popularity wouldn't hold a candle to Japan's love for Sadaharu Oh. By the end of this episode, I think you will get it too. In many ways, historically speaking, Oh's story and accomplishments remind me a lot of Josh Gibson, except in Oh's case, this time we actually have the numbers, as records were kept much more meticulously over in Japan in the time period, and since we have the records, and when you look at them, honestly, it's almost impossible to keep from being blown away here. Starting in 1959, O played 22 seasons in the NPB, all for the Yomuri Giants, and I'll do my best, by the way. I know I apologize about this last episode, but I will do my best with a lot of the names and cities and whatnot. I apologize if if I mispronounce anything. I tried to look up what I could, but just bear with me here as I figured some of this stuff out. It's worth noting that the NPB only played 140 games in a season during O's playing days. So keep that in mind as I list some of these numbers because you really want to soak them in for the impact here. In all but three of his 22 seasons, he hit at least 30 home runs. Uh, That's what 19 seasons of at least 30 home runs. That includes, by the way, those 19 seasons all came in a row. He hit 100-plus home runs in 13 of those seasons. He has a career 301 batting average with a .446 OBP and a career 1.080 OPS, which, for the record, is a Japanese record, as is his 2,170 RBIs. And yes, again, you heard that right. He had, for his career, an OPS over 1,000. We're usually impressed when a player has a couple of seasons with an OPS over a 1,000. But O did it for 16 consecutive seasons. From 1963 to 1979, his lowest OBP in a single season was 415. And let's not forget by all accounts, he was considered the best fielding first baseman in the league throughout his entire career, winning the Japanese Gold Glove nine times in his career, including in 1980 at the age of 40. His 868 career home runs isn't just an MPB record, by the way. It's a world record. No one in the world has hit more home runs than Sadaharu Oh. Now, it's worth reiterating for the record, they did this all during a 148-game season. That's crazy. He's a 9-time MVP, 11-time champion, who won the Japanese Triple Crown twice, Every year, Japan gives out an award to its best athlete or team. And only two players have won the award a record three times. Ichiro Suzuki and Sadaharu Oh. We're talking about an extraordinary player. I really cannot even begin to actually summarize the impact that Sadaharu Oh had on baseball and on Japan. It's just really astonishing. Now... To put through an exercise here, I want to try and give context here. We don't have war numbers for Nippon players, but I think we can get an idea of what he would have put together over a career in terms of war, or at least establish a baseline, right? Uh, So Lou Gehrig, one of the greatest first basemen of all time, played 17 years in the major leagues as a first baseman. In that time period, he put together 113.8 war. He played in 2,164 games with 9,665 plate appearances while hitting 493 home runs, 534 doubles, 1,995 RBIs while walking 1,508 times with 2,721 hits and a 1.080 OPS. Now, Sadaharu Oh. Played in 2,831 games with 11,866 played appearances, hitting 868 home runs, 2,170 RBIs, and 2,786 hits, with a 301 average in that exact same 1.080 OPS as Garrick had. Now, outside of home runs and games played, their career numbers are practically identical. We don't know what the replacement level for players in the MPB at the time were. I feel like we can set a baseline minimum for O's. Estimated war at something around Gehrig's 113.8 mark. Then you have to wonder if the extra home runs boost him any. So let's look at that. It's estimated a solo home run is worth something around 0.1 war, and O hit 375 more home runs than Gehrig. That equals out to at least 37.5 war extra, bringing him to 151.3 war. It's worth noting, too, that by Baseball Reference's defensive war numbers, Gehrig was worth negative defensive war in all but three of his 17 seasons. O won nine gold gloves in his career, so you have to assume he probably gets another 10 to 15 war from defense alone. So now we can estimate that O ends up with somewhere around 160 war in his career. Only Barry Bonds, Cy Young, Walter Johnson, and Babe Ruth would have put together more war in their career, and it's about 50 war higher than any other first baseman just remarkable, just an incredible career, and we're just scratching the surface, wait till you hear everything I have to tell you today it'll blow you away now, I've just listed here essentially a sample of his accomplishments and I do feel like the words coming out of my mouth don't accurately express how dominant he was, we are talking about a mammoth, a titan of the game and it doesn't matter where he played or what you think about Japanese baseball you're talking about a living legend of the game you can't Tell the story of baseball throughout the world without including Sadaharu O. You just can't. And I, I know I talked about this a little bit last week with Shohei Otani, but it's important for me to express and reiterate this. I will be trading throughout this podcast any player's accomplishments in the NPP as being equal uh, to if they were accomplished in the major in, in the majors. I won't play into the narrative that North American baseball is the superior or only valid form of baseball. I I just won't. I don't believe that, first off. I also think it, it is mired in many ugly things that I don't want touching my game. That's not something I want in baseball. So I will be treating everything that O accomplishes in Japan as being equal to what he might have accomplished in the major leagues at the same time. Okay? Now... For me, O's world record in home runs makes him the home run king across all leagues. Doesn't matter where. He is the home run king across the world. And that's how we're going to treat it as well. It's also worth taking into consideration that if O wanted to play in the United States at the time, it's probably highly unlikely he could have come and played here. O started playing in 1959, which is less than two decades after the end of World War II. And for the record, two dec- less than two decades after we had Japanese internment camps in America. We don't know, but it seems highly likely it probably would not have been the most welcoming uh, environment for a Japanese player. Technically, to give perspective, there was a Japanese MLB player who played just 56 games in the mid-1960s named Masanori Murakami. But like I said, he played just around 56 to 60 games in the U.S. before returning to Japan. And in case you're like what was this a welcoming environment for these players? We didn't see another Japanese player in the majors until Hideo Nomo in 1995. Almost 30-something years go by before we see another Japanese player in, in the U.S. I get the impression that it would not have been as simple as, well, if he wanted to play against the best, he should come to the U.S. It doesn't seem like that was an option. And again, we consider them equal anyways. Now, another feather in the cap of considering his accomplishments as legit as if they'd happened in the majors. Consider, at this point, just how many Major League Baseball players vouch for the idea that he would have been just as great in the United States. I'm going to give a small sampling of them, but it was extensive as to how many really legends of the game vouch for Sadaharu O's talent and ability to succeed in really any league he would have played in. According to Don Baylor, O could have played anywhere at any time. If he played in Yankee Stadium, being the left-handed pull hitter he is, I have no doubt he'd hit 40 home runs a year. Frank Howard said, you can kiss my bleep if he wouldn't have 30 or 35 home runs a year. He rates with the all-time all-stars of the game. Frank Robinson, one of the greatest players in Major League history. I'm sure he would have hit in the 30s and probably in the low 40s. Frank Robinson said of the number of home runs he would oh would have hit. Tom Seaver, who even went over and pitched in Japan for a while, he sure hit me. He was a superb hitter. He hit consistently and he hit with power. He'd be a lifetime 300 hitter. Pete Rose, and regardless of how you feel about Pete Rose, and and I have many thoughts. We'll do that episode one of these days. The truth, you know, the man knew hitting, and he said. There's no question in my mind he would have hit 800 home runs if he'd played there. But if he played in a park tailored to a swing, he'd have hit 35 home runs a year. He'd hit 300, I'll tell you that. Davy Johnson raved about how good of a defensive first baseman he was. Brooks Robinson, again, one of the greatest players to ever play, said he was just an outstanding hitter. And the list goes on and on. Really, any any American player, anyone who was his peer, saw his ability and could do nothing but rave about it. And if they're vouching for it, I don't know why we wouldn't consider it equal as well. So with that out of the way, you can see that Sadaharu O was someone who commanded the respect of players across the world. Now, the story of how O becomes the greatest home run hitter in the history of the game is a fascinating one. It almost feels like it came out of like a movie or, or something. But to get there, I feel like we need to start all the way back at the beginning. Oh was born in Sumida, Tokyo in 1940 to a Japanese ma- uh, mother named Tomi O and a Chinese father, Shifuku O. There is an interesting point of clarification I want to make because O's multinational lineage will play an important role in O's career and stardom. While O is considered half Chinese, and I want to preface, I'm not an expert on this but I felt it was important to preface this. While O is considered half Chinese, it's worth noting that technically it seems like the area of China that he came from is what we would think of as Taiwan, or I guess as it would have been known at the time as the Republic of China or the ROC. And there, you'll often see this balance between acknowledgement of his Chinese heritage and times where it's treated almost like Taiwanese heritage. And we've seen this sort of thing. Taiwan played as Chinese Taipei. In the World Baseball Classic. So I just wanted to bring that up. Simply because in the interest of clarity. That it seems like he was originally from. Or his family was. Because he was born in Tokyo. His father was originally from somewhere in the area. That we would now think of as Taiwan today. Shifuku O owned and operated a noodle shop in Japan. Where Tomi would also help out. And Oh had four siblings. And as the legend goes. He thought. Shifuku did, thought that baseball was mostly a waste of time. He wanted his sons to go and have practical careers, be engineers, be doctors, and why not. Instead, it was his brother, uh, Tetsushiro, who instilled a love for baseball into Sadaharu and took him daily to the sandlots, and to the ball fields, and to games. His parents were out running the noodle shop. And uh, Tetsushiro himself. For quite a while, was a promising player himself, until a broken ankle derailed his potential career. But he ends up having a lasting impact on the game of baseball anyways, through his mentorship of his little brother. Now, O would go on to star as a high school baseball player, mostly as a pitcher. And if you remember, I talked about this during last week's Shohei Otani episode. But high school baseball in Japan is not like it is in America. We think it's an overblown thing sometimes here in America, with the travel leagues and everything. And for the most part, it is. Japan takes it to a whole nother level. Honestly, it's more like the equivalent of a college sports experience, especially like, say, college football or college basketball here in America. It's that big of a deal. High school exhibitions and games sell out. it's just It is a whole different animal. And they go and live in dorms and live on campuses. And it's just a whole different thing. And at first, O's father forbade uh, him from pursuing baseball as a profession. But at the insistence of uh, Tatsushiro, he eventually caves. And Sadaharu was allowed to pursue his baseball dreams. Now, despite some extreme highs and lows in terms of performance as a high schooler, he ends up being signed out of high school for about 1 million yen, or roughly around what would be $60,000 at the time, by his hometown team the omuri giants and they didn't sign him to be a pitcher they actually signed him to play first base at the time and here's the wild thing the future world record holder in home runs he actually struggled coming out of the gates playing in professional baseball and in fact he struggled mightily in his first year in 1959, he had just 161 across 94 games, with just 7 home runs and 7 doubles. He had a 579 OPS. It's not the, the indication of a, a world-breaking power hitter that we would see somewhere down the line. And according to Scott Porzanski's write-up on O for the Athletic, which is, by the way, where I pulled those earlier quotes as well from the players, the book on O was that he couldn't catch up to a fastball at all, which... If you can't do that, it's hard to have much career success as a hitter, which at this point was what he was doing exclusively. And it's just one, we know how this works. We've it all the time with players. Once you have that weakness, pitchers are going to exploit it. And either you adjust and you adapt or you don't, right? And there's some improvement in his second season. He hits 270 with 17 home runs and 19 doubles in 130 games. This is in 1960, but Nothing that seemed to indicate what was to come. In fact, actually, if you go to the next year, 1961, he craters again, he answers 253 with 13 home runs and 25 doubles in 127 games with an 802 OPS. Uh, That's an above-average player, sure, especially considering he was uh, a good defensive first baseman, but not by a ton. And it was fair to assume that the Giants were starting to become skeptical that O could make it as a professional ball player long-term, but they kept the faith. And this continues until hitting coach Hiroshi Arakawa comes into the picture. And that's where this story goes from the typical story of baseball success into the stuff of legends. This is where things get truly interesting. But before we dive into Arakawa and his transformation of Sadaharu O into the most popular Japanese player ever, let's take our first break.
0: Fads come and go That's NOom.com to sign up for your trial today. Most weight loss programs are short-term fixes. But the problem is managing your weight needs a long-term solution. And that's what makes Noom different. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight today and in the future. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So we've
1: seen the journey Sadaharu O took to get to this point in his history, but let's actually backtrack a bit and talk about Hiroshi Arakawa, former veteran of the Nippon Professional Baseball League himself. Arakawa played from 1953 to 1961 and had a roughly average-ish career hitting 251, which is 16 home runs across nine seasons. In 1961, as his career was nearing an end at the age of 30, according to that same athletic article by Scott Pazansky, Arakawa visited renowned martial arts sensei Morihei Yushiba, who was famous for founding the art of Aikido, amongst other things. And uh, side note, I've actually studied Aikido uh, when I was in college. And, you know, this must have caught my eye. And for those who aren't familiar with Aikido, it's famously known as one of the few martial arts that is without any real attacks. Almost everything is some form of a defensive technique aimed towards evasion or restraint. It requires near-perfect balance, timing, footwork, along with a deep understanding of how your body moves and, and how all the muscles and joints involved in movement work. Go YouTube videos of people practicing Aikido. It's as much a ballet as it is a whirlwind, as much as it is a method of self-defense. Uh, above all, it requires immense discipline and immense inner calm. As the story goes, according to Pausansky, when Arakawa explained baseball to the sensei, and uh, essentially how you hit a baseball, Yushiba asked a simple yet seemingly strange question that irrevocably altered Arakawa's life. For something like that, why don't you just cut through with a Japanese sword? Now, stunned, Arakawa saw the truth hidden in the innocent question. From a kinetic standpoint, the motion of drawing and swinging a Japanese sword was incredibly similar to swinging a bat. You can actually, again, go on YouTube people cutting baseballs in half. They like go to a batting cage and cut baseballs in half with a, with a, with a, like a katana. It's fascinating to see. It's really cool. Uh, but you, you, know, kinetically, they were very, very, very similar. And perhaps even more importantly, he was drawn in by the discipline and the dedication shared between the two actions. And, you know, there was even deeper roots amplified in the teachings and foundations of Aikido in that discipline and dedication. Now, for the record, in case you're wondering where a sword comes into play, you know, in a martial arts that supposedly has no attacks, a huge part of Aikido is that you can't learn how to defend yourself against a sword if you don't have the sword technique yourself. Both, A, because how do you practice it with your sparring partner if you can't swing the sword, but also, the way my sensei in college described it, it was not so much learning how to fight with the sword, but learning how to understand sword fighting. And this very much comes into play in hitting and you know in understanding your body and how it moves. Now inspired by this, Arakawa retires as a player to become a coach. He wanted to teach hitting. And he was hired that winter by the Yomuri Giants, and as fate would have it, that would bring him smack dab into the path of one, Sadaharu O. Now technically, this wasn't the first meeting between a- Arakawa and O. When O was a teenager, he originally hit right-handed, despite being a natural lefty. There was no reason for it, other than O had just assumed that's how he was supposed to hit. Because, for one thing, being a lefty was sort of taboo at the time. There was a lot of superstition and whatnot tied into that. And it was also because that's how everyone else had it. And so he just assumed that's how you're supposed to hit. And Arakawa was a big leaguer at the time, and was at one of Young O's games, and instructed him that if he was a natural lefty, he should hit from the left side. And it's one of the first major changes that altered O's game early on. And, you know, little did they know that years later, the baseball gods would bring them together again to bring even more change into O's life. Now, the first thing Arakawa did was install in O the discipline and dedication of Aikido and had him implement that into every part of his training. He stops drinking, he stops smoking, he stops partying. But the it also was in how hard he trained and how often he trained and in the way that he trained. Now, the biggest change, though, came in the drastic alterations Arakawa made to O's swing. Apparently, O was way out in front of incoming pitches and was way, way off balance. It, it was why he couldn't catch up the fastballs. He couldn't keep his hands back. He could sit back on pitches, but also couldn't catch up the things. So, to fix this, Arakawa took the base of some classic proven baseball swings. Uh, one that is often cited is Stan Musial. You know, is one that really has a lot of its... You know, has a lot of comparisons to Sadaharu Oh's swing. But then he adds an Aikido twist to it. Aikido is all about maintaining perfect balance. There's so many of the moves and pivots and things that you do that require perfect balance. And... Arakawa wanted to move this into, oh, swing. Now, you know, kind of, because you kind of think of it this way. The reason you wanted perfect balance was you wanted to make sure that you didn't move until you were sure of your attacker's commitment to their actions in Aikido, right? So, you know, otherwise, if you reacted too soon or was off balance, you couldn't change or react or adapt to what was happening, and you could say the same thing of reading a pitch, right? A lot of modern thought about hitting is less about you know repeating the same motions every time or doing things like that, would being able to adjust, being able to move your hands, being able to change and adapt to whatever is going on with the pitch. And this is how you would do that: is by maintaining balance at all times, just like in aikido. So Arakawa implements what he called the flamingo stance at the time. I would stand perfectly balanced on his back leg. And as the pitch was coming in, he'd drive his front knee upward and use the following forward, like a momentum of that knee coming back down to perfectly time his swing. He wouldn't start moving forward until he knew where the pitch was going. And, you know, the big part of this was his upper body, his arms, and probably most importantly, his head never moved throughout this whole process until the exact right moment when O knew exactly what was coming and what to do about it. There are videos of O's swing on YouTube if you go and look it up. But here's the thing. Even if you've never seen it, and you should go watch it. it, it it's incredible. But even if you've never seen O's swing before, you've seen his swing. You've seen some form of the stance, at least biomechanically in Asian hitters throughout baseball history, like Hideki Matsui, Ichiro Suzuki, Kosuke Fukudome, and even current hitters like Stephen Kwan who, while he was born in San Francisco, is of Japanese and Chinese descent. I love Stephen Kwan. I'm a Guardians fan, so I watch a lot of Stephen Kwan. And one of the things you hear constantly on the broadcasts is how much they talk about his ability to keep his hands back and wait back on the ball and always react perfectly. And if you watch his swing, it's because he uses the flamingo stance. The impact of this stance on Japanese hitters and really Asian hitters is immeasurable. It's huge. And I cannot emphasize that enough. This stance had an effect on hitting in Japan for generations. And obviously, it certainly had an effect on Sadaharu O. When speaking on how Akito and this new stance affected him, O wrote, I had reached a point, O would write, where Akito had become absolutely necessary to what I did. Without Akito, I would not learn to stand on one foot. I would not understand it and this goes back to what we were talking about you know where swords were involved in a keto not because you need to know how to stab something with a sword because you need to understand sword fighting and this feels in that same place now his practices became increasingly more and more unorthodox sometimes his practice would involve Slicing sheets of paper with an actual sharpened Japanese sword, as much as honestly would ever involve him swinging a ball and hitting, uh, swinging a bat and hitting a ball, and he became relentless in his practice. O became the symbol, though, the perfect example of the relentless discipline and exhaustive training that is a hallmark of Japanese baseball. And who boy, did it pay off! And uh, a side tangent on this because this is just a personal anecdote that I I feel find very gratifying. I find it's very vindicating on this whole story because when I was in grad school about a year and a half ago, when we were putting together proposals for our capstone projects, essentially our thesis papers, my first suggestion was a, was a proposal study. I'm fascinated by the concept of uh, cross training skills, right? The way to learn a, a skill in one sport by playing another sport or, by recruiting for a sport, by looking at this skill set in a different sport. And you've heard me talk about tennis and third base, or things like that before. It's a similar idea. And the proposal I actually written was about studying Aikido, Aiedo, which is a martial, uh, martial arts centered around uh, swinging a Japanese sword and, and drawing it. And then Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's martial arts. I would wanted to put together or a proposal study to train baseball players in these martial arts and then see how it affected their ability to play baseball. And I feel very vindicated by this (laughs) to see that there's actually historical precedence for this. Most of my classmates thought I was crazy, uh, but I feel very vindicated here. Nonetheless, honestly, to call 1962 a breakout year for O would be selling it a little short. He hits 272 with 38 home runs, 28 doubles, 85 RBIs, and 79 runs scored across the 134 games. This adds up to a 941 OPS. Now, for the record, this was in 1962, right? O wouldn't have an OPS below this mark until 1980, his final year in the league. That's 18 years later. 18 freaking years of an OPS over 940. Utterly insane. He also won the home run title that year, and this would be the first of 13 consecutive years he would do so. 1963 continues to break out, as O would hit 305 with a 452 OBP. He'd have 40 home runs, 30 doubles, 106 RBIs, and 111 runs, scored with 5 triples. Heck, he even chipped in 9 stolen bases to go along with a 1.092 OPS, all in just 140 games. The Giants would go on to lead the league in wins, and go on to win the Japan series for the second time with O on the team, but for the first time with him as one of the team's stars. And the crazy part is, Sadaharu Os just get warmed up. Before talking about 1964, though, I think it's worth inspecting the uphill battle O faced to become a star in Japan. Because he was half Chinese, there were some issues with how fans viewed him and treated him. It's worth noting at this point, China and Japan were less than 20 years removed from fighting against each other in one of the bloodiest wars of modern history. And this isn't meant to justify the jingoistic and sometimes xenophobic attitudes of Japanese fans at the time, but it does give insight into what O was facing in his rise to stardom. That is quite the hill to surmount, and it really puts context to what he overcame to win the fans, and again, become what's essentially the most popular Japanese player ever. Now, in 1963 is his breakout year. 1964 was the year he became the best player in all of Japan. In 140 games, he hits 320 with 55 home runs. And to put it in context, that's a 63 home run pace over a 162 game season, which, by the way, would have broken Maris's record just three years after he set it in what 1961. In addition, he had uh, 456 OBP with 24 doubles, 119 RBIs, and 110 runs scored to go along with the 1.176 OPS. He once again led the league in home runs and set a Japanese record that would stand until 2001 for single-season home runs. He's named the MVP of the league. It was clear at this point that oh, the superstar, had arrived. In 1965, O didn't slow down one bit. Hitting 322 with 42 home runs, 104 RBIs, and 104 runs scored with a 490 OBP and a 1.156 OPS. Oh, and he does all of this while striking out just 58 times in 575 plate appearances, which was good for a staggering 10% K rate. To do that while hitting 42 home runs and hitting three twenty-two is just obscene. It, 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 I, I, I don't know if we'd ever see a modern player really be able to pull that off these days. Now, he wins the MVP award for the second year in a row. And the Giants go on to win the Japan Series for the third time in O's career. Now, 1966 is another ho-hum, absolutely incredible year for O as he hits 311 with a 495 OBP and a 1.210 OPS. Despite only playing in 129 games, he clobbers 48 home runs, 14 doubles, 116 RBIs and 111 runs scored. I guess the voters got a little bit tired of voting for him or something as MVP because he got robbed that year by teammate and uh, fellow star Shigeo Nagashima who did hit 344 that year but he only managed just 26 home runs. He had 105 RBIs and only 83 runs scored to go along with a 999 OPS. Now, That's certainly a deserving season for MVP consideration, sure. But look again at those numbers from O. Again, he hits 311 with 48 home runs, 116 RBIs and 111 runs scored. I I, I think this isn't even close. I think O absolutely should have been the MVP that year. I don't think it's that close at all. Now, if voter fatigue cost him in 1966, it didn't stop him at all in 1967. That's O would win his third MVP, hitting 326 with 47 home runs and 22 doubles with 108 RBIs and 94 runs scored in 135 games. He had a 488 OBP to go along with a 1.211 OPS. He walked over twice as many times as he struck out for the third year in a row. Uh, at this point, he was just 27 and had already won three MVP awards and hit 260 home runs. Only 10 MLB hitters in history had hit more home runs by the age of 27. But again, this was in 140 game seasons. And again, I include the major league hitters just for context because that's a term we know and we can we understand. No one in the history of baseball anywhere had hit more home runs, though, in their first 1,162 games as Sadaharu O had hit. With O and Shigeo Nagashima operating at such a high level... The Giants dominate and win their 5th championship in 1961. In 1968, O put up a nearly identical season the year before, hitting that same 326 batting average with 49 home runs and 28 doubles, but chipped in 119 RBIs and 107 runs scored to go along with a 1.197 OPS. Now, you would have thought that this would have earned him another MVP, but once again, the award goes to Nagashima, who had an MVP level season again as well, if albeit again at a lower level than O, hitting 318 with 39 home runs, 125 RBIs, 80 runs scored, and a 1.011 OPS in 131 games. Now, again, that certainly deserving and worthy of the of the MVP. But again, it still falls pretty well short of O's performance. Now, either way. Having two MVP-level players putting up MVP-level seasons leads to yet another Japan Series win. In fact, this duo is so effective for the Giants that they won every Japan Series from now until 1974. That's six years from now. 1969 and 1970 do bring back-to-back MVP awards for O. O. In 1969, he hits 345 with 44 home runs with 103 RBIs and 112 runs scored with a 1.163 OPS. In 1970, he hits 325 with 47 home runs, 93 RBIs, and 112 runs scored with a 1.163 OPS. I wish in these individual seasons I had more information than I do. I usually try to give more insight into how these seasons you went and tell stories within them. But I've had a difficult time finding too many chronicalizations. That that's that's a word, right? Yeah, 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 maybe. Anyways, of the happenings and stories of the season themselves, beyond the statistics and the awards given out. So I apologize for the briefness on each season, but that's what I have that I could find that I had to work with. Now, 1971 brought. A bit of a down year for O, but that's relatively speaking. He hits 277 with only 39 home runs, 18 doubles, 101 RBIs, and 92 runs scored, which is good for a 1.032 OPS. Still MVP worthy, and there's an argument he probably still should have won over Nagashima, who won that year, who hit 320 with 34 home runs and a 976 OPS. But it's worth mentioning that Nagashima played third base, a much harder defensive position, and so it's entirely likely defense is bridging that gap as well, and Nagashima was the correct call in terms of winning the MVP award that year. Now, nineteen seventy two was the first time since nineteen sixty four that neither O nor Nagashima would win the MVP award, as their teammate pitcher Tsuno, Tsuneo? Tsuno, I think, Horuichi, would win the award that year after going 26-9 and with a 2.91 ERA and 26 complete games thrown. Now, for his part, O hit two ninety six with 48 home runs, 19 doubles, 120 RBIs, and 104 runs scored with a 1.089 OPS. Certainly, again, MVP-worthy season. And while he wouldn't win, he wouldn't have to wait long for his next win. In fact, he only had to wait a year. Now, the next season would mark a monster season for O, as he hit a career-high 355 batting with 51 home runs, 18 doubles, 114 RBIs, and 111 runs scored. Uh, This is in 1973, and he had a 1.255 OPS that year. Now, O had come close in several previous seasons to a 500 OBP, but he achieves it for the first time this season. He wins the MVP award running away with it, And to top it all off, he wins Japan's Triple Crown that year for the first time. In the history of the MPB, only eight players have won the Triple Crown. Oh, was entering already a pretty elite crowd. And we know winning the Triple Crown over here is one of the most celebrated accomplishments in Major League Baseball. So you can get an idea of just how elite this performance was and how much it would have meant over there as well. Now... If you think, though, that this was his peak year, his best year in his career, think again, because 1974 was lurking just around the corner, ready to pounce on opposing pitchers that were unfortunate to face Sadaharu Oh. That year, he hit 333 with an astonishing 532 OBP with 49 home runs, 107 RBIs, 105 runs scored in 130 games played. That has to be up there with some of the greatest single seasons ever played in the history of game. Only... Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, and Roger Hornsby have had a full season OBP over 500 in a season since 1900, and in those seasons, only Bonds and Babe Ruth did so with more home runs while playing longer seasons. It's it's simply an incredible all-around season. No one comes close to beating him in the MVP award voting, and he becomes the only player in baseball history anywhere, any league anywhere, to win the Triple Crown in consecutive seasons. To this day, like I said, he's the only player to ever pull that off, even to this day. In fact, there's an argument that no player outside of Barry Bonds has ever had a two-year stretch the likes of 1973 1974 for Sadaharu Oh. Just absolutely astonishing dominance from Oh. It's worth noting this year as well, not only is Oh the most popular player in Japanese baseball and a national hero, but he starts garnering international fame and a reputation as a home run hitter. He ends up participating in an exhibition home run derby against Hank Aaron, who that same year had just broken Ruth's all-time home run record, and the two would actually become lifelong friends. They would later do ph- philanthropy work together and start foundations together and, and became lifelong friends, which is a cool uh, meet cute, so to say. Now, because it's impossible to keep up that level of performance for that long. Oh, would suffer a down year the following season. Again, that's relatively speaking for him. Hitting 285 with a 451 OBP with 33 home runs, 96 RBIs, and 77 runs scored, and there would be no third consecutive MVP award. Now, fine. Pitchers got a slight reprieve for one year, but you couldn't keep O down for long as in 1976, he comes roaring back into the MVP conversation, hitting 325 with 49 home runs, a career-high 123 RBIs, to go along with 99 runs scored in a 1.205 OPS. Just like that, he's right back in the thick of it as the best hitter in the league, and he wins the MVP award once again. It's worth noting, for the record, he's winning the MVP, he's 36 at this point. Still winning MVPs and dominating well into the back end of his career here. And uh, it's also worth noting at this point, he had hit his 716th home run, which would have officially surpassed Hank Aaron for the world home run record. When Aaron set that record, he was 40. Again, at this point, O is 36. Now, O got a little bit of a uh, head start because he started playing when he was 19 years old. But if you remember, he didn't really start hitting home runs until it was like 21 or 22. Really just a remarkable stretch of home run hitting to get to that 716th home run at that age of 36. Now that's just an idea of how proficient and consistent O was at clobbering home runs. Now, 1977 saw O win his ninth and final MVP award at 37 years old by hitting 324 with 50 home runs, 124 RBIs with 114 runs scored, And a 1.183 OPS. He would reach 800 home runs in the 1978 season where he hit 39 home runs in that year. It was, and by the time we get to the next season, it it was clear at the age of 39 that O was nearing the end of his career. But that didn't slow him down power-wise. He still hit another 33 home runs and 30 home runs in 1979 and 1980 respectively before finally calling it a career after 22 seasons and an astonishing 868 home runs. It's a nearly unfathomable amount of home runs. I I don't know if anyone's going to catch up to that. It's really hard not to just be blown away by that number. And here's the crazy part, the wild part. Sadaharu O's impact on baseball wasn't yet finished. From 1981 to 1983, he served as the assistant manager of the Giants and took over full-time as the manager from 1984 to 1988, winning the league pennant in 1987. After seven years out of baseball, he returns to managing in 1996, where he would managed a Fukuoka Daye Hawks, winning three pennants and two Japan Series titles in the next 13 years. He even managed a Japanese national team in 2006 to won the first World Baseball Classic. In 2008, a stomach tumor forced him to retire from managing, but he stayed on as general manager, and to this day, he's still an executive of the team where he's won seven more Japan Series. So while you're talking, he's up around 20 Japan Series 1 in some capacity between his time as a player, a coach, and as an executive. So just a lot of winning. To, it's just a lot. I, I like—I honestly can't like fathom that kind of winning. It's the kind of thing of like, an elite college program or something. It, you just don't see that in a lot of professional sports. But O dominated that much. Now, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of, of O and his career. And I, and I fear I'm not doing it justice. But it is a genuinely legendary career. It, this is a titan of the game of baseball worldwide. And I, I, do not f- I feel like I can't emphasize that enough. Now, I want to talk about O and the Hall of Fame and where we rank him and where he settles in historically. But real quick before we do that, let's actually take our last break here.
0: Sometimes it can feel like food has an emotional control over you. Well, it's time to show your food who's boss with Noom. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long-term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow That's NOom.com to sign up for your trial today. Eating is an emotional experience, which is why managing your weight needs to be a psychological one. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's N O O M.com to sign up for your trial today.
1: Welcome back. So, we've gone over uh, Sadaharu O's remarkable career. And it it's genuinely one of the most incredible careers any player's ever had in baseball, where he's hit more home runs than any player to ever play the game. That's 868 home runs. Uh, that might be as close a number to untouchable as there is. Think of it this way. Just to put it in context. To reach 800 home runs, you need to have a career of 20 years where you averaged 40 home runs a year. Not had a couple of years of 40 home runs sprinkled in there. You'd have to average 40 home runs over 20 years. That's what it takes to get to 800, let alone 868. I don't know if this is ever going to get touched. Obviously, you will. Sports are cyclical. The records get broken. But you're talking about the... It's not just the skill. there's the discipline involved, there's the injury luck, the longevity involved in it, uh, and the odds are simply against it. So we might see it broken one day, but it feels pretty darn untouchable. Now, though, even with all that known, now again, world record in home runs, would you be shocked to know, obviously, O is in the Japanese Hall of Fame, but he's not in Cooperstown. And Cooperstown oftentimes likes to bill itself as the definitive Hall of Fame for baseball. Calls itself the Baseball Hall of Fame. And... This is one of my one of my bugaboos with with the Hall of Fame. Sometimes, is actually the reason why O's not in the Hall of Fame here. And what we think of as is really the American Hall of Fame, is Cooperstown chooses to remain limited to players who played in North America. I get it. O never played here in North America. Japan has its own Hall of Fame. It's not like uh, American players. Babe Ruth is enshrined in the Japanese Hall of Fame or things like that. So I get it. I totally get it. But if you're going to be the definitive Hall of Fame, if that's your goal is to say America and baseball, we're synonymous, we are the capital of baseball. You can't do that and then limit it just to North America. That's one kind, right? There's, there's so much else out there. and Baseball's played so many other places in the world. I feel like any Hall of Fame, I don't care where it is, that doesn't have... Sadaharu Oh and is, is missing something, is missing his cultural impact, is missing the impact, frankly, that he has had then on players who came to play here from Japan. Yeah, he has shaped how those players play and prep for games. I mean, again, we see his stance everywhere throughout baseball history in in modern Asian players. And, you know, we even sort of see it in our mental concept of you know Japanese players in history and whatnot he's just I, to act like Sadahiro oh had like no impact on on American baseball is is crazy so I, in my opinion i think i think he deserves at least some type of enshrinement in the hall of fame but i also understand the counter argument to it it's just important to understand why that is the case now It's also really hard, again, to sort of, when we're talking about ranking and putting in perspective, to describe O's cultural impact, right? Again, again, like the closest comparison I can think of is someone like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, maybe like a Roger Federer. I'm just trying to think of some of the most beloved, you know, athletes, so to say, ever. And they, they don't even scratch the surface of explaining how beloved O was in Japan. Think of it this way. Anytime someone threatened O's home run record of 55 home runs in a single season for decades, the freaking emperor of Japan would command that no no one pitch to that player. And here's the crazy part, the players would listen. We're talking about some of the more competitive, you know, athletes on the planet. And they would purposefully walk hitters that had a chance to break O's record. That's how important he was to Japanese players, to Japanese fans. I mean, again, the emperor would command this. I mean, heck, O oh has his own museum dedicated solely to him in Japan. And it's supposed to be larger than the Japanese Hall of Fame itself. That's how big it is. He's a national icon in Japan. And when you consider how complicated that must have been given his Chinese-Japanese heritage, it's really... Impactful. To me. And obviously to Japan. Not like it matters if it's impactful to me. It just means I, I consider it. I value it very highly. And. In all my years. I've watched a lot of sports. I've watched a lot of. Incredible athletes. And. I don't know. Of a player who mattered more to baseball. In one of the most baseball crazy countries in the world. And that. I don't even think that accurately describes how, how important Sadaharu O was in Japan in baseball. Okay, so we know that that matters to me when it comes to ranking. And, you know, within that, with that in mind, I think ranking O is actually a pretty simple debate. We're, we're going to talk about the tippy top of the list. But before we dig into that, though, let's go through the list real quick for uh, perspective. So starting at number one, we have Satchel Paige. Number two, we have Josh Gibson. Number three, we have Mickey Mantle. Number four, we have Greg Maddox. Number five, we have Mike Trout. Number six, we have Ichiro Suzuki. Number seven, we have George Brett. Number eight, we have Adrian Beltre. Number nine, we have Shohei Otani. Number 10, we have Clayton Kershaw. Number 11, we have Edgar Martinez. Number 12, we have Sandy Koufax. Number 13 is Tony Gwen. Number 14 is Hank Greenberg. and Number 15 is Nolan Arenado. Jumping down, we have at number 20, Addy Josh. At number 25, we have Robin Yount. At number 30, we have Paul Molitor. At number 35, we have Roberto Alomar. At number 40, we have Kyle Hendricks. At number 45, we have Whitey Ford. At number 50, we have Tony Stone. At number 60, we have Mike Sweeney. Sorry, I skipped 55, which was Jason Bay. And then the final three at number 61 is Herb Score, At number 62 is Mark Pryor. And number 63 is James Paxton. So that's our list. So, like I said, we're talking the tippy-top here, right? So I think you go straight up to Josh Gibson. I'm not going to muss around here. So one of the big bases for putting Josh Gibson as high as we did it, above Mickey Mantle, above Greg Maddox, was... The idea that on his Hall of Fame plaque he is credited with hitting over 800 home runs, right near 900, and I take that at its word. That would there would be a plaque in the Hall of Fame saying that if there wasn't truth to that. But we obviously we had the caveat that we didn't have records of most of those home runs. It was hard to corroborate completely. That's why he ended up behind Satchel Page there at number two, was we had more numbers for Satchel Page. Satchel Page was incredible. He was outrageously good. But that's why he's number one. But that's why Gibson at number two. So if the only thing I needed to move Gibson above Satchel Page was concrete evidence of 800 plus home runs, why wouldn't I take the guy who I do have concrete statistics for that shows hitting 800 plus home runs? Why wouldn't he be up there? So I think at the very least, he ends up above Josh Gibson. And when you talk about Gibson kind of also earned that spot largely based on how much his mythology and his legend meant to American baseball and African-Americans in baseball. We get that with Sadaharu O as well. I I feel like it seems like a no-brainer that that O goes ahead of Josh Gibson. And because, again, this is a guy who... You also, his own mythology and legend, couldn't possibly be left out of telling the story of baseball, especially baseball in Japan. It feels so core to the identity of baseball in Japan that you can't tell the story of baseball without it. So, again, I think for me, that puts Sadaharu O up ahead of Josh Gibson. And then the interesting question is, do we put him above Page? And like I said, I toyed with putting Gibson ahead of Page in the first place, but didn't because Page had more recorded statistics, oh, again, incredible statistics. We had more of a concrete record for him, and it was an incredible record. That helped break a lot of barriers in the major leagues, and also had his own incredible story and mythology, if not even more, more mythology surrounding Satchel Paige. But uh, th- there's definitely an argument that O should be number one here, because we do have that written record. And we even have more so of a written record than we did for Paige, who still had a ton of statistics lost to the poor record-keeping of the Negro Leagues. And... Like, I think the more I think about it, I think he he has to be the number one. Come on. He holds the world record in home runs. He's a nine-time MVP, won 11 championships as a player, won almost 20 in Japanese baseball as a whole. He won 13 consecutive home run titles. He won 15 home run titles in 16 years. He won two triple crowns. He walked at least 108 times for 16 straight seasons. This is all pulled from Scott Pozanski's home run, his write-up on, oh, by the way, the same one I was quoting earlier, his career OPS was, as I mentioned before, was 1.080, and he had an OPS of 1,000 or higher every year from 1963 to 1978. That's incredible. That That is dominance on a level we have likely never seen, and I don't know when we'll ever see again. He might have an argument as one of the most dominant athletes ever in any sport, right? And I'm torn here because Page was genuinely magnificent. He has a career 273, uh, 2.73 ERA, and that's for what records we have. And that was over 1,700-plus 7, innings pitched. Page was incredible. He was a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest legends to ever play the game. But with that being said, though, I think oh, is just he's just more impactful, and we have the statistics for his entire career. We still see his influence every day in today's Asian hitters. And if nothing else, I think I think he runs away with the argument for whether or not he's the best first baseman of all time. You saw, we made the comparison to Gehrig, who's the current MLB uh, leader amongst first basemen for war. And then we tacked out 50 or 60 more war past Gehrig for O. Oh, he is the greatest first baseman ever play baseball professionally. End of story. And I think with all that in mind... This probably actually really isn't that hard of a choice. And so Sadaharu O steps in as the new number one on our list. I think, obviously, if we had more of a record for Page and Gibson, statistically, it would be more of a debate. But with that concrete record, with those 22 seasons of excellence and domination, then add in everything he accomplished after, his playing days, you throw in the legend of how he became a home run hitter, his own orthodox stance, pulling in Aikido, and having a legendary teacher. It's just, it's too perfect. It's, it's too much. I think he well deserves the number one spot on the list, and that is where he shall go. So that is our episode. I hope you enjoyed it and found Sadaharu O's story as fascinating and compelling as I did. His impact is far-reaching, even beyond what I can describe here in this podcast, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to try, and I thank you for listening. I know sometimes it can be challenging to listen to a podcast about someone you may have never heard of or a non-american player any of those sort of things or someone any of those sort of things that you might not you might have a harder time connecting so i appreciate you taking the time to listen about this extraordinary player who is one of the greatest players to ever play the game anywhere now next week i think i'll wrap up our mini series on japanese greats it won't be the last japanese player we ever cover but we'll like i said kind of do these in threes and and what I want to do is actually look at the first Japanese player I had ever watched in Hideo Nomo. And in a lot of ways, he broke a lot of barriers in baseball. And he really changed Major League Baseball in a big way, writing himself into Japanese baseball legends. Check us out. It'll be a fun episode. I'm really looking forward to doing it. Until then, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel J. Port, or you can find the podcast at LB Legacies, also on Twitter. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. Have a really great Friday. Catch some baseball. Or heck, if the weather permits it, I know some places the sun is shining a bit more this weekend. Head on outside and try to catch some baseballs. And until then, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much again for listening. Have a great one.